don't decide who you're going to listen to in the business based on whether they like you or they don't like you. Welcome to ActorCast, the podcast that broadcasts the work, advice, and insight of actors, writers, directors, producers, and other industry experts in show business. I'm your host, Patrick McAndrew. Sit back, take notes, and enjoy the show. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of ActorCast. Thank you so much for joining me today where you are learning the latest and greatest information from some of the entertainment industry's greatest experts. And boy, today do we have a great expert joining us. We are going to be joined by none other than Austin Pendleton. Austin Pendleton is a playwright, actor, director, teacher, and a Steppenwolf ensemble member since 1987. He received critical acclaim in 1964 for his performance as model in the original Broadway cast of Fiddler on the Roof. He appeared in The Last Sweet Days of Isaac, for which he won the Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Performance and an Obie Award. He also appeared in The Diary of Anne Frank, Good Time Charlie, and Up From Paradise, as well as many other plays. In August 2006, Austin played the chaplain in Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage and Her Children with Meryl Streep and Kevin Kline in the public theater production. As a director, Austin has worked extensively on and off Broadway. His direction of Elizabeth Taylor and Maureen Stapleton in Lillian Hellman's The Little Foxes garnered him a Tony Award nomination. In 2007, Austin also received a special award for his contributions to American theater at the 52nd Annual Drama Desk Awards. Austin, it's safe to say, has left a tremendous legacy, and I am personally very excited to chat with him because he has actually been my acting coach for a few years now. So I have learned so much from him, and I'm so excited to share his knowledge with you all today. In this episode, we talk about what excites Austin about the craft of acting, what some of the common traits Austin has seen among successful actors, how actors can improve in their auditions, and what Austin believes are the most important skills actors should develop in their craft. We talk about a lot of great things in this episode. I really hope you enjoy it. I don't have any doubts that you will. Please go to actorcast.fm and leave us a review. Let us know your thoughts. It would go a long way in spreading the word about this show. So without further ado, let me please introduce today's guest of ActorCast, Austin Pendleton. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the ActorCast. Today, we have the very wonderful Austin Pendleton joining us on the show. Austin, thanks so much for being with us today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the ActorCast. You have, you've been such a, uh, a wonderful acting coach and, and mentor to me over the last few years. And whether it's been, you know, coaching with you one-on-one or taking one of your uh, classes or master classes, I'm always in awe of your approach to the craft of acting. And 
and just your perspective that you offer through not only your knowledge of the industry, but also the various stories that, that you've told throughout your, your years working in this world. And so I'm really excited to, to share your perspective with our many listeners who tune into this podcast, most of whom are actors who tune in. I'm wondering if you could just start off by sharing uh, what excites you about the craft of acting? Why is this something that is worthwhile to do? Well, it has its origins so early in my life that it goes back into like almost a prehistory. When And in prehistory, you don't remember the origins. I mean, you know the, what the origins were, but you don't remember what motivated them. However, there are two things I can say. I grew up in Warren, Ohio, and I grew up in 1940. And in 1943, the, the musical Oklahoma opened. And then about a year after that, it started to have a touring company. And then two years after that was another touring company. They would come through Cleveland. In those days, they, they went to the Hannah Theater touring shows and so around 1946 or something was probably the first time that my parents took me up to see and we saw an evening show and then another tour came in 1948 so and we saw another touring show I mean they just kept touring Oklahoma all the time <laughs> and my parents for some reason even though I was that young would we would go to the evening performance and 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 not a matinee and we would drive back. There's a road between Cleveland and Warren called Route 422. And when I've been in Ohio recently and staying with my brother and his wife at Cleveland, and sometimes I go down to Warren. I drive down to Warren or am driven down to Warren. And I have a friend there and he, he, has a, he has a show on the radio in Warren where he interviews people and he interviews me and they come in. And, and, and Route 422 is exactly what it was like in 1948. And it's exactly the same. And you pass farmlands and stuff like that. And I remember driving back from those evening performances of Oklahoma, the, maybe the two times I saw it in Cleveland. Um, and there's a certain field and the moonlight hits it and you're driving back around 1130 or 12 or something like that. And I remember passing by that field, thinking about Oklahoma and thinking, I want to do that. I want to be up on a stage. There was no particular role I wanted to play. I just wanted to be in that show. So that was one source. But it, but it was like not kind of a daydreaming thing. It was kind of obsessive. Yeah. One of the things that I thought, boy, it, it looks from, from the way they all looked up on the stage. Before the show, you have to take a bath. And that sounded so great. <laughs> you have to take a bath you take a bath before the show and then you go do the show that for some reason was very exciting to me the other thing was that a little bit after world war ii maybe two two years or so after world war ii the people in warren a bunch of people in warren wanted to start a community theater and they came to, to my mom for advice because my mom had been a professional actress and she'd been a professional director. So they came to her for advice. 
And she would advise them, well, the first thing you have to do is you have to have a system to raise the money if you're going to start a theater. But, and, but then, and so she would coach them on that. But then they got into more of the details. And finally, she got very involved with that community theater when they began. And the first two productions were done in our living room. Oh, that's amazing. And they were, and, uh, and they were rehearsed um, and we hung up a curtain halfway through the living room, you know, and, you know, all that. But then also, even when they weren't performing in our living room anymore, they would often come and rehearse in the evenings. And I remember when, on evenings when they were going to come over like at eight o'clock or something, and my, and my brother and I, my younger brother and I would go and we would help arrange the furniture in the living room so it would correspond to the demands of whatever the play was. Then they would start to rehearse. And my brother and I were supposed to be in bed, but we would sneak down and hide behind the furniture and watch. And I was just transfixed by the whole prospect of, of, of rehearsing to do a play. Then they weren't in our living room at all anymore after that, either for rehearsals or certainly performances. But there was one play they did every, they would do three or four plays a season. And a lot of the plays were like by Tennessee Williams or Arthur Miller or so forth, or it's like some, whatever the, the thriller of the day was, you know, and all that. But often in the winter, what they would do, there was a big thing that, that a lot of particularly community theaters did but they would take an old fashioned play from the 19th century with it, like the hero and the villain and the heroine. And they would put on a production that would make fun of it. And those were very popular. And there was one called Gold in the Hills. And in that play, my mom was in it and, and my father was in it. And I had a little part in it. And there was this, the, the middle act was a tavern, you know, and there's the, the scene of those old plays where this young kid would come in and his father was drunk and he would beg um, his father to come back and stop drinking, come back home because the other kids were starving and mom was starving, you know, they had things like that. In fact, there was a song in the late 19th century all about that put out by the temperance league, you know, Father, dear father, come home with me now. The clock in the steeple trace too. Da 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 da. Our mother is hungry. Da, 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 da. All of us waiting for you, or something like that. It was, you know, it was unbelievably sentimental. So I played this kid who comes into the bar, and my mother was playing a character called Old Kate, who was a tough woman, alcoholic woman in the bar. And my father was a guy in the bar named Pete the Rat. So we were, all, we were all about to go to rehearsal. And it was being directed by an English woman who was a good friend of my mom's, although as the years went by, they weren't at all friends anymore. But in these days, they were still friends. So we were about to leave for rehearsal and I was so excited. I was actually going to be in this play and, and my mom's, and I'd been in a couple of earlier rehearsals. Rehearsals were always in the evening. And that's it. So we were all dressed and, and we were ready to go. And my mom said, we're not leaving until you answer a couple of questions, she said to me. Now she'd been professionally trained as an actress and she was, in fact, she could have had a real career. I mean, she, she was beginning to get work in the business and all that, she married my dad. 
But anyway, so she knew about Irene. So she said, I have a couple of questions for you before we go to rehearsal. Because this is a big show and Dorothy's directing it and she has a big responsibility and she doesn't have time to help you figure out how to act. So you're just a burden on her right now. So when you come into the tavern, where are you coming from? And I said, from, from backstage. She said, no. Do you listen to the play at all? You're coming in from the street. Now, is it cold outside or is it warm outside? I don't know. And she said, we're not leaving until you answer these questions. We're not leaving. I'll never forget. I remember where she was seated in the living room and my dad was standing up because, because we needed to go to be on time to the rehearsal. And she was walking me through the basic principles of acting. And I was like eight wow. years old or something. And I, all I wanted to do was go and be in a play. So that was my first acting lesson. That's amazing. You, you, in the literal sense, have to know where you're coming from. Yeah. Things like that. Go in there. Why did you come in? And I would say something. Just say my lines. <laughs> no. I mean, she was openly impatient with these, with these answers. <laughs> so that, that, as you can tell now, this happened in 1948 or something. So it, and it's still vividly imprinted in my mind. I can still recapture it for you because you, your first lesson in anything that you're at all interested in doesn't ever leave you. Yeah. That that's amazing, and then to to hear about this this origin for you, and then to then also look back on your incredible career as as an actor, as a director, a playwright, an acting coach, it really is fascinating to hear kind of where that original nugget uh, yeah. started with, within yeah. within this world of acting. You yeah. you you've had the opportunity to work with so many amazing and legendary uh, actors and actresses and writers throughout the the 20th century and and beyond into the our current century as well with regards to the actors that you've worked with are are there any sort of common threads that you have found uh, some traits that you've seen that are common among the most successful actors well, one is concentration. When they are when they are rehearsing the scene, they are they are there and nowhere else. I mean, I mean, no matter what their techniques are, a whole lot of actors have techniques with different emphases. And what a really intelligent director does, I've, I've watched really intelligent directors do this. They that they direct each individual actor according to the training of that individual actor. There's a famous story about Elia Kazan when he was directing the movie version of The Streetcar Named Desire. And there, was a, there were scenes between, between uh, Vivian Lee and Marlon Brando. And, and, and a lot of those scenes, if you've seen that movie, they're both in the same shot. I mean, it doesn't cut back and forth to close-ups, except right toward the end of the film. But, but all their earlier scenes, they are in the same frame. 
so people so there's a story about i mean people who were there um it was it was long before my, I, I would have been about 11 then so i was by no means on the set of the movie of the street kind of desire he would say okay now marlon he would say to brando now marlon you remember when we did it on broadway this scene you come in and you come from the bowling alley and and you're all sweaty in that and you're all ready to fuck your wife and all that kind of thing and you can't wait and you're and you're full of the you're pumped with the energy of of you did well on the bowl uh, you were the head of your bowling team and 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 you you knock the other team off the map you know and you're full of that and you want to get laid and all that and you walk in your door and you see this bitch of a sister-in-law who you didn't even know was coming there was coming to visit and immediately you want to fuck her so so that's what this scene is about Marlon. now now vivian i think perhaps an upward inflection so he was addressing two actors trained in two radically different ways and he wasn't trying to he wasn't trying trying to unify their approach to acting he was playing to what each of them knew and that story about directing i think is as close to the essence of directing actors as any story i've ever heard where you play to the to their strengths to you play to where they're secure and then they feel much more free to open up and one way you can kind of tell a, a, an inexperienced director is if you're in a show and you see the other you see the director trying to get everybody to work the same way and you want to say to them it's a lost cause don't do that you're just going to get a bunch of uptight actors <laughs> and 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 furthermore you're going to be perceived by some of them as playing favorites don't do that so does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It actually prompts another question that I have for you quite nicely. It, it, I was very struck by what you were talking about with regards to concentration and that actors, the most successful actors that you've seen throughout your time working, they, they all have an intense ability to concentrate. Based on your years, both as an actor and, and director, and then through your years coaching several actors as well, what what do you believe are some of the most important skills that actors should develop in, in their craft? Well, I had three major acting teachers, Uta Hagen and her, her husband, Herbert Berghoff, and, and they were the ones who, who after I'd, I'd studied with each of them a couple of terms, Herbert got me teaching there. And the other major acting teacher I had was a guy called Robert Lewis. And I was in a thing called the Lincoln Center Training Program when they were having, when they were training actors for what was meant to be the Lincoln Center Company that in the event all fell apart. But the training program was, and he was the acting teacher, Robert Lewis, eight months, eight hours a day, five days a week. You weren't paid, but on the other hand, you didn't have to pay anything. So you got, and Bobby Lewis had been before that. He was already a major acting teacher and like Uta had written quite a few books about it, but he was also like a Broadway director. He directed a lot of Broadway hits, you know. He was originally with the group theater. So he had that whole kind of training of the method in Lee Strasberg. And then he wrote a book where he openly challenged Lee Strasberg. He said everything that Lee Strasberg 
is teaching is wrong and it's killing American acting. And so that was a huge event in the industry. And, and Lee Strasberg, of course, was the guru of what was called the method and all that. Anyway, so, but what Bobby, the mantra that, the mantra that Bobby Lewis would say over and over and over again in class for those eight months was talking and listening. Talking and listening, if you're not, you can be doing the most sh shatteringly deep work. You can have the most exquisite understanding of the way the play uses language, but whatever kind of language it is in the play, whether it's, it's realistic language or heightened language, you can have all of that. But if you're not talking and listening, it all goes down the toilet. He would just, and the way, when he would critique a scene all during those eight months, the first thing he would address was the quality and the work of the scene that had just been done of the talking and listening. And then over the years, we remained friends for the rest of his life, which went on for decades. Uh, he would come to see shows I was involved in. And he would say, we would go out and the first thing he'd say to would say the talking and talking and listening in this one was really good, or the talking and, and listening in this one is not up to your usual standard. And that was always the first thing he addressed. So that was the cornerstone. He said, we first have to do that, and then we can get into the finer points. But a lot of the finer points are going to be able to make, they will present, they will make things clear on whole other on the emotional levels on the relationship levels if you just simply talk to each other and listen to each other that's worth hours and hours of analyzing a relationship or analyzing you know so and so that was the huge thing i got from him and that everybody could study and in that training program were people like frank langella and, and, and faye dunaway and barbara Loden. People and very promised people of you know who, who went on to to fame and fortune and there was and and the other great thing there was an eight month program September to May we were told there were thirty of us hundreds of actors auditioned they picked thirty of us we were told at the end of the eight months half of us, 15 of us, would be taken into the company that was going to open the following season under the direction of Elia Kazan. And so I think part of the reason and I would like I pass this on, I realized about halfway, and so effectively it was an eight month audition for the company. And although the company crashed and burned as soon as it started the following year, still it seemed like it was going to be a major, major, major. It was going to be the equivalent of the National Theater of Great Britain, but here and 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 very important actors were going to be involved, like Jason Robards and people like that. But I realized everybody else was so tense all the time, and I mean, I mean, some of them were doing extraordinary work, but they were just—it was hard on their system. And I realized about halfway through, I didn't really care whether I got into the company or not. I'm just getting eight months of primo training, not only from Bobby Lewis, but on movement from Anna Sokolov, who was a legendary choreographer of the day. And, and the speech teacher was magnificent. And I'm getting all this free training every day for eight months. 
So I don't care whether I get in the company or not. It's eight months is just a gift. Right, right. A gift in the literal sense, because I didn't have to pay for it. And so I, I, I would get nervous when I would put up a scene, but not in terms of will I get in the company or not. Just, I just, I would get nervous. I'd get, you know, because I was going to do a scene. So those were the three tributaries that flowed into the river of my training was Uta Hagen, Herbert Berghoff, and Bobby Lewis. Was there a, so the talking and listening from Bobby Lewis was something that obviously you've took with you throughout your career. Yeah. Was there, was there a similar type of takeaway that you took from Uta Hagen and, and Herbert Berghoff as well? Well, Uta and Herbert, they all three of those people, and even though Uta and, Uta and, 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 and Herbert were married, Uta and Herbert's ways, emphases in the teaching were very different. Their ultimate kind of a goal they wanted you to get was the same, but the, but the pathway was totally. Now, Uta was like, are you there in the present tense with the circumstances? If you are, if you are, then it's going to ignite between you and the partner in the scene, whoever that is. And she, she more emphasized that. And, and it wasn't it wasn't that Bobby ignored that, but it all came in, in a subheading under talking. It was Buddha was big on when you entered the scene. I didn't I wasn't clear that you were coming from anywhere. Kind of a much more sophisticated replay of what my what my mom had been saying way back years before, but but much more detailed in the way it was carried out. Herbert was. It's hard to describe, but he had a profound effect on me in the classroom, apart from having a profound effect on me. And he's the one who asked me to teach where I'm still teaching over 50 years ago. But anyway, he was sort of idealistic. He would emphasize the physicality of things. Like at that time, Albert Finney was playing Luther, the title role in a John Osborne play called Luther, about Martin Luther who had been a monk in the Catholic church, but then rebelled against that and began the Protestant, Protestant revolution that, brought, that took the supremacy away from the Catholic church, which was huge at the time and very courageous because the Catholic church was not pleased about this. But, in an, he, but he would tell us things like, go see Albert Finney, there's a scene where he's in his monk's robe and there's and there's a rope tied around you know his middle like all like all the monks monk, monks robes would have and he said albert finney in luther and he's he's already beginning to get to chafe under the restrictions of the catholic church but he hasn't yet formed the idea of actually rebelling against the catholic church but, and so Albert Finney at one time couldn't get the knot in the, uh, I, this has all been rehearsed obviously, but couldn't get the knot untied in the rope to get the rope off. And Albert Finney struggling to get that rope untied was a, a physicalization of how he was intellectually and emotionally feeling trapped by the Catholic church. And Herbert would say, now that's an example of 
you have to you have to translate what's ever going on emotionally, intellectually, in in in, in everywhere, spiritually, in every way. You have to translate it into actual physical behavior and, and life. He was huge on that. And if, and if he felt the scenes were well interpreted, and even if the talking and listening was good, but that there wasn't a, a physicalization of, in that way, he was not unlike Ilya Kazan, then you weren't going to get there. So he would look at, so between the three of them, Udo and Bobby and Herbert, you, you, you know, it, they kind of, between the three of them, they kind of covered the waterfront. Yeah, it, it's it's ama just amazing to to hear about, you know, what the, the impact that they had on you and then how you've been able to share that with others through the years as well. well. You know, people ask me about my teaching and I say, and I, and I mean it, I'm not being facetious. Over 90% of my teaching comes directly from one of those three people. And then somebody else who I think sort of had an influence on me was, was, was Lee Strasberg. Now Lee Strasberg hated my work. He didn't want me anywhere near the actor's studio. He, he, he was, and people would ask me to audition with them for, as, as their scene partner when they auditioned. And he would be like, more or less open. I, I say, I don't think you want me as a partner because it's going to color his impression of you that you would pick me. <laughs> and they, and um, he was never once even remotely courteous, let alone encouraging or anything like that. And somebody who didn't know all this once, once uh, gave me a copy of a book called Strasbourg at the Actors Studio, where it's just transcripts of a lot of his critiques of scenes that people brought in and correctly it doesn't say in these transcripts who the actors were uh it doesn't say what their names are were but the way he talks to them so so one night i just started to read in the book written by this very influential teacher who made a point out of not not thinking i was a good actor and, and um, you know, a man who, and this is almost the point of this, a man who publicly hated my work and clearly was not very fond of me, because what, what, why was I even imposing myself on the profession, you know? And yet here I am, and somebody was not aware of all that. He, uh, they gave me the book and I was reading it one night and I thought, these things he's saying are brilliant. And, and, and they were all about just simply responses to a scene he had just seen and the, and, and the book leaves out the names of the actors and everything. But the things he's saying are brilliant. Now, the point of that story, I think is clear. Don't decide who you're going to listen to in the business based on whether they like you or they don't like you. I mean, there's some people who like your work, but you can't really learn anything from them. I mean, it's, it's very nice that they like your work and it's very kind of them to be supportive, but that doesn't mean that everything they say is pure gold. And then if you're really lucky, encounter people who, what they say is pure gold and they also like your work, like Udo or Herbert or Bobby or 
other people. But don't, don't rule somebody out just because they don't like your work. The same goes with reviews. A review is, is either a reviewer is either a good writer or a bad writer. And if he or she is a good writer, then take in anything they say, even if they loathe and despise you, which will happen. <laughs> but if they can't write, then don't take them that seriously, even if they like you. I mean, be happy that they liked you, but don't say, well, they're, they're really smart. They're really, if they're not intelligent, they're not intelligent. Right, right. Oh, this is this is amazing, Austin. I think it's you. You always provide so many uh, nuggets of wisdom for for our actors, for both for myself and then for our actors tuning in. I I cannot thank you. I've enough. had sixty years to figure it out. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. And, and thankfully, uh, for the rest of us, we uh, we still have a ways to go, but at least we could learn from your 60 years of figuring it out. Yeah. I, I can't thank you enough for joining me on the show today. And, and not, not only for joining me on the show, Austin, but also for your kindness as, as an actor, as a director, as an acting coach. I could tell that you, you really do care about helping actors figuring out this this craft and figuring out this world. And so, so I can't thank you enough for that. But before we head out, I'm just wondering if you have any parting words of advice from your 60 years working in this world for our actors tuning in today. At a very low moment, and I may have told you about this before, but I was having a brief meal, a bowl of soup with Lynn Redgrave. And I had just been slaughtered in reviews, in career ending reviews. I mean, I mean, literally, I didn't get a major job again for six or seven years after that. And she said, all that's going to happen. So you know what you have to do, Austin, she said. Don't think about a career and think about acting. In terms of, and go anywhere to act. Act in attics, act in some little town miles away from New York, act wherever. Just think about acting. Don't think any more about acting in career terms. The career will either take care of itself ultimately, which it did, or it won't, but it took years, or it won't. But that thought, she said, she made a career between, uh, she made a differentiation between thinking about a career and thinking about acting. It's maybe the most transformative conversation about the profession that I've had in all those 60 years. I passed that on. This is pure Lynn Redgrave. Oh, great. Well, Austin, Austin, thank you so much again. Can't thank you enough for joining us on the show. My pleasure, Patrick. Always feel free. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of ActorCast. You can head to ActorCast.fm and leave us a review to let us know what you thought of this episode. If you haven't already done so, sign up for our newsletter to get the latest and greatest information on upcoming guests, showcases, and much more. I look forward to catching you all in the next episode, and you know what time it is. It's time to go out and create.